It says, now it came to pass, or excuse me, now it was about the sixth hour, that there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. But all of his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also awaiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Chapter 24, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how you spoke how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered the words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all of these things to eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with him who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. I think there's some interesting language at the end of this, these words perplexed and marveled at the news of the empty tomb, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think that out of all the amazing claims that we can make as Christians regarding our faith, there's none that even comes close to the claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If you think about it, this amazing claim that Jesus rose from the dead, it strains our human ability to believe something this marvelous is real or true to the utmost. 
But I think Christians have a second challenge when it comes to the resurrection. Not only whether or not it happened, but whether it even matters if it happened because it happened 2,000 years ago. Consequently, many people ask how an event that happened so long ago can have any significance today, for us today. For why on earth would Christians make such a big deal about the resurrection? Isn't it irrelevant? Does it really matter? And in light of this, I'd like to take the time to highlight the relevance of the resurrection of Jesus and um, see how it practically relates to our lives today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time we can gather together to worship you, to remember, to rejoice, to reflect on your goodness and your love for us. Father, as we begin this morning, I pray for um, all of us here, but for anyone specifically, Lord, who has yet to um, put their faith in you. Lord, they may have heard about you, um, but they don't know you as Lord. They've not surrendered their life to you as um, you being their Savior and accepted your gift of salvation, your gift of forgiveness of sins, your gift of eternal life for those who will put their faith in you. So, Father, I pray for anyone here today who may be in that spot, in that place, that they're seeking and, and they're searching and they, they have questions. And, Lord, I pray you would speak to their heart and to their minds and that they would submit their lives to you today and they would receive what you have for them, Lord, and that they would follow you the rest of the days of their lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I was preparing for this morning and this last week and actually for a while now, um, I, th- I think that we need to begin this morning um, by recognizing that the resurrection of Jesus resonates with our human condition. This is what I mean. It, 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 it speaks in a profound way to our need, our human need, that no other event in history does or even could. It's unique. And when we consider the early Christians in the church there in Jerusalem that spread out and the writings of the early apostles and disciples, it's clear that the early Christians, the church, were convinced of this. The resurrection, meaning the need, the essential needs of us as human beings. As they knew that the resurrection had taken place and they knew that it was an event of enormous significance. In fact, the resurrection was so central to the early church's message that in the Gospel of Luke, or excuse me, in that Luke in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 1, and he he describes Peter and John in their preaching after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and John says that they were preaching Jesus, excuse me, Luke writes and says that they were preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. You know, the same thing was true about the Apostle Paul when he was speaking with the philosophers in Athens. And their response to Paul was to ridicule him, to speak derogatory words about him because of the message of Jesus and the resurrection that he preached to them because it seemed to them to be foolishness. And when the time had come for Paul to summarize his first letter to the church there in Corinth, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, and said this. He said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. He was seen by Cephas and then by the Twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Some have passed. So since the very beginning... We see that the resurrection of Jesus is at the very heart, it's at the very core of the gospel message, of the Christian good news message. But before I go any further in talking about this, I think it's important for us to completely understand what we're talking about when we refer to the resurrection of Jesus. We live in a time, we live in an age where things don't normally mean what they used to mean, culturally speaking. Things have kind of got twisted and perverted in many ways. And I think that this understanding of the resurrection of Jesus may have also succumbed to some of that. And so when we say that Jesus has been resurrected, hear me today, we're not talking about Jesus' survival in in, in, in where one might say Jesus is alive or Jesus is living. For example... Even though Buddha is dead, we know he is dead. His body lies in a grave in Gansu, China. There are some who would say that Buddha is alive. He lives on and is survived by his followers who practice his teachings. Likewise, when it comes to leaders of great revolutions, historically speaking, we know that in many instances, their lives have been perceived to continue on even after their death as their followers have kind of picked up the torch and continued to fight for that vision or those dreams that those leaders had once fought for. Furthermore, D.L. Moody once said in New York in 1899, he said, someday you'll read in the papers that Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? He said, at that moment, I shall be more alive than I am today. But listen, Moody wasn't talking about being resurrected. He he simply meant that he would survive a physical death. So the resurrection, hear it again, it's not just the survival of Jesus. Additionally, the resurrection of Jesus is not his resuscitation. In other words, his resurrection did not mean that having died, Jesus was then again brought back to life only to die again. And I think C.S. Lewis illustrates this thought well in his book titled The Problem of Pain when he expressed his sympathy for Lazarus who was resuscitated by Jesus, brought back to this life in the account recorded in John chapter 11. And C.S. Lewis wrote and said, this being brought back to life by Jesus had to be a very hard experience on Lazarus. Because it meant that Lazarus would have to do all of his dying all over again. So when we talk about Jesus' resurrection, be clear, we're not talking about his survival. We're not talking about his resuscitation. But what we're talking about is how, listen, how God performed a a dramatic act by which he arrested or detained the process of decay, decomposition, 
and corruption and rescued Jesus out of the very realm of death and transformed his body into a new vehicle for his personality so that Jesus in his humanity had a new power and was now immortal, never to die again. And this resurrection of Jesus, please hear this because I'm going to connect this truth to the end of our study. This resurrection of Jesus is something that is new and, and something that had never happened before and has never happened yet since. Yet. So now that we're clear on what we're talking about when we think about or consider the resurrection, I come back to my previous questions. Does the resurrection of Jesus really matter? Does it make a difference whether it's true that Jesus, this man of Nazareth, actually rose from the dead? Does it matter? And as we look at these important questions, I want to consider at least three reasons for why the resurrection is of the utmost importance. And what I mean by the resurrection as it practically relates to our lives today. First reason is, the first reason for why the resurrection is of such great importance is because the resurrection of Jesus, hear this, it should make your heart be filled with joy, but the resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's forgiveness. That's a good thing. The resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is one of God's best gifts. In fact, I think it's right to say that without God's gift of forgiveness, none of God's other gifts would really amount to much in the scheme of eternity. I remember reading once in an article that was written by a Christian psychiatrist who said this. She said, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could just be assured of their forgiveness. That's a powerful statement. There's a recent John Hopkins study and it reported on how forgiveness, the scientific research from John Hopkins reported that forgiveness is essential to a person's mental health and their physical health. And the truth is, is that all of us have some skeletons in our closets. Do we not? I think we know that what we mean, what that means. Things we've done, things we've said, things we've thought that perhaps no one else knows about that we're deeply, deeply and sadly ashamed of. Things that our conscience nags us, torments us, and condemns us for. Things that we need forgiveness for. It was Mark Twain who once wrote and said, man is the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to. We're ashamed, are we not, of things we've done in the past. And nobody is truly free from these things without a conscious awareness of having been forgiven. Sadly, all too often, we want to run away. We want to run away. We want to hide when our conscience troubles us, when we're convicted, rather than being able to go and look God in the face or to look one another in the face. But there is hope today. 
as we celebrate and remember. We see that there is hope as the good news message of Jesus begins with the assurance that there is forgiveness with God today for those who will cry out to Him, for those for whosoever will believe in Him. Several times during Jesus' public ministry, Jesus said to someone these hopeful, encouraging words, your sins are forgiven. And in doing so, Jesus unmistakably linked our forgiveness with His death. With His death. As Jesus taught that He was going to die burying our sin and our guilt and our condemnation in His innocent person in order that we might be forgiven. But the question is, how do we know whether Jesus was correct or not? He said He was going to die for our forgiveness, but can we validate, can we confirm what He has said? How do we know? Was He right? Was He telling the truth? How can we know whether Jesus achieved by His death what He said He was going to achieve? How can we know whether God accepted His death as we as believers might say is a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world? This is what He claimed to do. And the fact of the matter is is that we would never know Hear me, we would never know whether Jesus by His death made, had made forgiveness available to us if He had remained dead. Think about it. If He had never been raised from the dead, we would not know whether His death had been effective. And if Jesus had remained dead, all we would be convinced of is, his, is that His death was a failure. And that he, he did not secure by it what He said He was going to do. In fact, the Apostle Paul is very clear about this truth when he wrote and said in 1 Corinthians chapter 17, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile because you're still in your sins. Your sins are not forgiven. He says then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died having put their faith in Christ, he said they have perished if in this life we only have hope in Christ. We are the, of all men the most pitiable, pitiable but, but now Christ is risen from the dead and He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And by raising Jesus, God has assured us. He has confirmed it to us. He has proven it to us that He, God, approved of what Jesus had done on the cross and that He did not die in vain. On the contrary, His death is grounds on which God is able to forgive all of our sins. It is the grounds by which He is able to give us new life in Him. The resurrection validates the death of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus assures us, it assures us of God's forgiveness for us today. A second reason for why the resurrection is of great importance as it practically relates to our lives today is that the resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's power. Power. God's power. There's none like it. But it assures us of God's power being made available 
to us. And this is what I mean. Last week, if you remember, if you've been here with us, we've been studying through the book of Hebrews. But last week in Hebrews chapter 10, think about it again. I mentioned that of all the problems that we have, the greatest problem we have as a human being is our sin problem. We are sinners with a sin nature. We sin because we are we are sinners. And in regards to our sin and the fact that we are sinners with a sin, sin nature, it's clear that we need more than just forgiveness. We need power. We need power in the present to resist the temptations of sin, the desires of our flesh. But in order to do this, we need to have a new heart. We need to be changed on the inside And this is something that we can't do on our own. I remember before I came to Christ and the life that I had lived, that there were times, many times, where I would be alone and I would be utterly and thoroughly disgusted with the man that I had become. Wanting to be different, trying to be different, but unable to do so, unable to make a change inside myself, continuing to go back, the Bible says, like a dog returning to its vomit. And maybe you didn't live in such a radical way as I did before you came to Christ, but the the same is true. We wake up and we look in the mirror and we can be disappointed with ourselves. And we strive to be different. But in and of ourselves, there is nothing that we can do, but there is hope for us in Christ, in the resurrection, in the power of God. This is what we need. In light of this, we should ask, hear this, is God really able to change human nature? Can God really change men and women from the inside out? Is it possible for selfish people to be made unselfish? Is it possible for immoral people to be given self-control? Is it possible for cruel people to be made kind and sour people to be made sweet? Is it possible Is there really hope? And today, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that it is possible. It's possible. God has power to change human nature, to change human beings. He has power to transform you and me into the image of Jesus Christ, to make us like Jesus. In fact, this is what God had prophetically promised to do all throughout the Old Testament as he foretold of what would come as a result of the work of the Messiah as he would come to be a sacrifice for many. One such place is in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25-27, through 27, where God said this. He says, Then, speaking of the time of the Messiah and the work of the Messiah, he says, Then I will... Sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. He says, I will give you a new heart. Put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. But even with this promise and others like it, hear this, many wonder if God is really able to make alive those who are spiritually dead. 
Many wonder if God is really able to make alive those who are spiritually dead. And perhaps, perhaps this describes you today. Listen, as the spiritual heavenly reality, a magnificent realm beyond this material has no meaning to you. You sit here today and you have no understanding of it. No conception of it. You're not aware of it. In one sense, you're dead to it. So you ask, as I propose these questions and speak about these things, you ask, is it possible for God to make you alive spiritually so that you become aware of the reality of this other eternal dimension in life? This dimension that I talk about, this dimension that I'm assured of, this dimension that I'm longing for. And the answer to the questions is yes, it is possible. And it's possible because of the resurrection. Listen to what the Apostle Paul prayed for in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And this should be our prayer. This is my prayer for you today if you find yourself in this place. This is my prayer for others who I love who are spiritually dead. Where Paul writes and says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably Great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. In light of this, we have no other reason, no other choice but to rightly conclude that the resurrection of Jesus is the supreme evidence of the power of God down through history. And that same resurrection power which God displayed in Jesus when He raised Him from the dead is available to us today. And hear this, God can raise us from the death of sin to a life of righteousness. He can raise us from the death of separation into a life of close, personal, and communion and intimate fellowship with God. Sadly, please hear this because I don't want to I don't want to play this down in any way. I believe that we as the church are always in danger of simply trivializing the Christian good news, but also in danger of minimalizing what God, by His resurrection power, is able to do in ordinary people like you and I. We sometimes talk of becoming Christians as if it's no more than simply turning over a new leaf, right? They turned over a new leaf. They gave their life to Christ. Or maybe it's becoming a little religious or making a few superficial changes to our usual patterns of life. However, I want to assure you, I want to comfort you and give you hope. I want to assure you that becoming and being a Christian according to the New Testament by what I read is something far more radical than that. And radical is the right word because it means going to the very roots of our human being, to the very core of our human personality. And becoming a Christian is nothing less than a resurrection from spiritual death to the beginning 
of an entirely new life through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes about his experience and he speaks about being born again, becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus where the old things have passed away and everything in him and for him had become new. If you know anything else about the Apostle Paul, know this, is that before he came to Christ, before he came to know Jesus and the resurrection power there on the road to Emmaus, he was seeking after Christians to put them to death. And in the moment, in a miraculous twinkling of an eye, he was changed, born again, as he gave his faith, gave his life, and became a follower of Jesus. Transformed, made new. And the same God of the supernatural power who raised Jesus from physical death can raise us from spiritual death and make us alive and alert to spiritual things. And we can know that God can raise us from death because He raised Christ. He can change us because He changed Jesus. And so the resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's forgiveness. It assures us of God's supernatural life-changing power. And those are great things. Those are hopeful things. Those are joyful things. And lastly, the resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's ultimate triumph at the end of history. The resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's ultimate triumph at the end of history. You know, we as believers and even unbelievers today, it's true, they look around and they go, what is this world coming to? We look around and we see what's going on and we can lose hope and we can have despair about what we see. But we as Christians, we often comfort ourselves when we are discouraged in this way where we make these statements of truth where we say, we know the end of the story, do we not? We know how it ends. And one of the significant differences between all the different religions of the world is their vision of the future. What they say or have concluded that is going to happen. Is there any future, some say? Is there any hope in the future? And there are many people who offer no hope at all as they descend into this existential pessimism and into deep despair and sadly i think that's a very common attitude in the world that we live today but one example is this british philosopher he's a mathematician but he's more notably an outspoken atheist his name is bertrand russell listen to what he says about the future listen to his outlook on the future he once said when i die i believe that i shall rot and that is the end he's a pretty uplifting dude he says all the labors of the ages the inspiration the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction this is this guy's outlook his perception of tomorrow. He says the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried in the debris of a universe in ruins. In other words, he says there is nothing in the future to look forward to. Sadly, there are many people like this who have no hope for the future as they believe that there is nothing to look forward to. 
while there are others who think of history not so much in a line that's going to end in some kind of great global climax, but they see life as circular, right? In that everything is going to be repeated, repeated continuously in an endless cycle of reincarnations, and there is no escape except for the extinction of mankind. I personally think that's more depressing than the one that there's no hope at all, that it's just going to end, it's going to rot. You mean i got to come back and do it again? And again? However, guys, it's not so for us who believe in Christ. It's not so for us. Christians, we're confident that that Jesus is going to come back at the end of history and not in humility and weakness as in His first coming, but the Bible makes it clear that He is coming back in awesome power and in pure magnificence. The second coming of Jesus is beyond our wildest dreams and imagination, and when He comes, He comes in power and He comes in glory. And when He comes, He'll bring history to an end. Hear this. When He comes back, He's coming back. He will bring history to an end, but it is not the end. For he will raise the dead. He will regenerate the universe. He will make everything new again. That's the Christian hope. And we believe that the whole creation, which the Bible says at this moment, is groaning in bondage to the decay and the death, that the whole creation is going to be liberated at some point. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8 and says that the groans of nature resemble birth pains of a new order as all of creation waits to be delivered from the bondage of corruption through a new birth. In light of this, we're told that, that, that a, a, a new world is going to be born. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, where sin no longer exists. And on that day, we shall be people with new bodies in a new world. Here's a real awesome understanding of this. Johnny Erickson Tata. You may know her. She's a Christian author. She's a, she's a speaker. She, she was confined to a wheelchair after she broke her neck as a teenager in a diving accident. And in one of her books, she wrote her book, Heaven, Your Real Home. She said, she said this, I have a hope in the future. The Bible speaks about our bodies being glorified, about them being transformed. I know the meaning of that now. It's the time after my death here when I, the quadriplegic, will be on my feet dancing. When the brokenness of this life is made whole. And the Bible promises us that in the life to come, we're going to have a new body with incredible powers. But you may be wondering if there's any evidence. These are pretty extraordinary claims. Is there any evidence for these extraordinary claims that the universe is going to be reborn and that we will be resurrected along with it? And once again, 
the evidence is the resurrection of Jesus. His resurrection is the guarantee of the resurrection of our bodies and the regeneration of this universe because the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning. 2,000 years ago, the resurrection of Jesus was the beginning of the new creation of God. In the resurrection of Jesus, that first bit of the old material order, think about it, Jesus' body, the first bit of that old material order was redeemed. It was transfigured. And His resurrection is the pledge. It's the promise. It's the assurance. It's our confidence that the rest of this material of this creation is going to also be transfigured one day. One day very soon. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20-26. through 26. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead, and He has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then afterwards those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The worship team wants to come back up. We're going to wrap up with this. So the resurrection of Jesus, please hear this, has great and significant relevance for us today. Why? Because it assures us of God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But please hear this. Only if you put your trust in Him. This forgiveness that God offers, that Jesus secured for us, is for only those who put their trust in Him. It assures us of His resurrection power that we can call upon in our own lives, where we can continue to be transformed, made new, sanctified, the Bible says. It assures us of God's ultimate triumph in the end when we shall have new bodies in a new world. And in light of this, I think we should consider what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through He said, Praise be to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again into a new hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. My hope, my prayer, is that every single person here would share in this. If you don't yet share in this, my prayer is that you would come to share in this glorious hope with me and with all the other Christians throughout the world by making a decision to put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and that you too would begin to follow Him today. Let's pray. Father, and I pray for anyone here again who is struggling, Lord, that is wondering if you would receive them, if you would accept them, if you would forgive them, if these things that you promised could be received by them. And yet you tell us, Lord, that you're faithful to forgive 
anyone and everyone who comes to you. So I pray that, the, that, the, the, that the, these walls would be stripped down. And if that's you this morning, if you're here and you're wondering about giving your life to Christ, about putting your faith in Him, about putting your trust in Him, I would call upon you to do that today. That you would pray this prayer with me as I pray it. Father, I confess that I am a sinner and I am in need of forgiveness of my sins. I'm grateful that you died on the cross. I believe in you and I receive the work that you've done for me. I pray that you would come in me and change me and make me new again. That you would fill my heart with the joy of the promise of newness of life that comes from those who follow after you. I commit my life to you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you stand where we can worship the Lord together?